0: Hello and welcome back to a new season of sorts for 007x7. I'm John Engel.
1: And I'm Mitch Bryan.
0: And I say of sorts because this episode in particular is not the first episode of the new season of 007x7 where we will be, folks, talking about the first seven minutes of From Russia With Love. This is just a little warm-up episode to discuss a few things that were going on in cinema surrounding these first couple of Bond films that we have have talked about or will be talking about this year.
2: The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences presents its 35th Annual Achievement Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, your host for this evening, Frank Sinatra.
3: A funny thing happened to me last time I was in Washington. This incidentally was quite a while ago i was passing the national gallery i guess you might call it an art house and all the way around the block was a tremendous line of people waiting to get in to see a little italian picture called uh mona lisa Uh, my first reaction was go fight it these italian picture makers have been knocking our brains out for years my second reaction was I wondered how come that three centuries later, they were still lining up to see a picture, not widescreen, doesn't even move or talk. The chick just sits there and smiles. Well, not even smiles, she kind of smiles. How come they're still lining up to see it? I'm still not sure, but maybe, maybe it's because the Mona Lisa represents one man's personal vision, a picture he had to make, not something turned out on an assembly line because the Italian painting industry needed product, but a picture he had to make so badly his brushes hurt. Actually a marvelous thing is beginning to happen to us here. Other mediums have come along that can turn out assembly line product, English translation junk, faster and cheaper and better than we can. And whether we like it or not, if we want to compete, we're being forced back into the Mona Lisa business ourselves, and we're beginning to find out it's a pretty nice business to be in. Only a couple of years ago, say, if Leonardo da Vinci had wanted to make the Mona Lisa out here, he might have had a few problems here and there. For instance, the scene of producer's office. Da Vinci enters and explains he's got an idea for a picture. A beautiful woman, he says, sitting there, smiling. Well, not exactly smiling, kind of smiling. He finishes and then there's a long silence. Finally, the producer speaks. Well, he says, uh, I don't know, but it does have a great posh for a girl. Now, if we can get somebody to pose for it, Liz, maybe, or Ingrid, or Doris, or even Anne margaret Some kind of a name like that. You know Leonardo Baby? I like it. I really like it. And we might even change the title to Mona and Lisa. Pick up some of the odd house crowd that way, see? Da Vinci gulps, but he's got a house in Brentwood, three kids, and an analyst to support. So why should he argue about it? Now the producer's really getting warmed up. We've got a picture here, he says. We've really got a picture. Now all you got to do, Leonardo baby, is just paint a guy in there looking over her shoulder, see? We get Rock or Greg or Tony or somebody to post for it, just for a love interest. And the motivation, we got to clean that up. I mean, you just can't have a dame sitting there smiling. You got to tell the audience what she's smiling about. Leonardo, sweetheart, if I were making this picture, which I am, I'd paint in some big kind of a cocktail party scene in the foreground, give it some production value. It's a flashback, see? She's smiling and thinking about the decadent life she used to lead before she, uh, I don't know, joined the peace corps or something. Anyway, that's how they made Mona and Lisa for $8 million, opened it at the music hall where it bombed out for obvious reasons, and six months later they sold it to television. Now, obviously, this little story is not true. Nothing like that could happen here. (laughs) The truth, the happy truth, is that many of the pictures and artists we're honoring here tonight are already in the Mona Lisa business, making pictures because they, as artists, want to make them. Because they have to make them so badly, their cameras and their typewriters and their eyebrow pencils hurt. And as I said, it's a pretty nice business to be in.
1: So we're going to look at 1963, which is the year that the film went into production and would be released. They made these movies so quickly. So Dr. No had come out in 62. (laughs) So we thought we would look at the movies surrounding From Russia With Love and since uh, Stephen Farber and company have already done a whole big book on 1962, we thought we'd just jump ahead and look at 63 and see whether we can find any trends that are emerging, things that might inform from Russia with Love or things that maybe Russia from Russia with Love would get out ahead of and, right. and push some boundaries. So we're just going to kind of go through some different films that came out in 63 and see what we can discover.
0: Right. So, I mean, there's kind of three different topics of sorts here. There's what is going on in film at the time that James Bond films are a part of just naturally because they're coming at the same time. There's what led to James Bond, which we've already kind of discussed with, say, North by Northwest, right, uh, for instance, which we're going to end up talking a whole lot more about that movie this season, I think, than even That's last true. season. Yeah. And then there's what was a response to James Bond, or Dr. No in particular, if we're talking about 1963, because what when did... uh From Russia with Love came out in December of the very end of the year because they
1: started shooting it in April. So it was fast. When you think the way these movies are made, they're done so quickly, it just blows my mind.
0: Yeah. So just real quickly, they realized Dr. No was a big hit fast enough to double the budget and go for a second movie because that seems like really close on the heels. And I would almost thought, especially with the release, the nature of how movies were released at the time that they might have needed more time to realize what a big hit it was.
1: It came out in May of 1962, Mm -hmm. so they knew very quickly they had a hit on their hands, and they had been looking toward doing a series anyway, so it wasn't a big surprise that they were gonna jump into From Russia With Love. That was the one they thought they would do next. Yeah, true. And so, again, speed being uh, of the essence, you can actually make decisions and pivot in a way that you just can't do today with movies. Right. So to think that they shot From Russia With Love in 1962 and released it in 1962 and with, I mean, do- Dr. they, I'll start that again. And to think that they shot Dr. No in 1962 and released it in 62, just like with From Russia With Love, shot it in 63, released it in 63, it's it's really amazing. Yeah. And so that kind of speed... One has to think that the success of Doctor No probably did help some other movies get greenlit the following year. That that are what we could call Bond adjacent. There are a couple of things that are worth looking at and asking that question.
0: Sure. Uh, which movie? What do you want to start with first? I mean, do we? Well, want to just I actually kinda... want
1: to start internationally because because this is that period of of s- movies from Europe starting to, to make their way into the United States and be recognized. And these are, of course films that are pushing boundaries thematically, psychologically, sexually, uh, not as much with violence because uh, that seems to be the province of Japan and America in this period. But I just wanted to start with eight and a half yeah. because it is one of the ultimate examples of the European art film of Fellini, of in a way, kind of a meta movies, you know, movies that are about movies that are about movies. Yeah. So all that stuff is starting to really, become almost mainstream and it just seems like a good place to start
0: yeah i guess i I would say probably this is my favorite movie from 1963 too this is a big deal for me man when i saw eight and a half for the first time I think it was my first Fellini pretty sure it was and super (laughs) eye-opening I just had no idea what I was getting into and uh, it's great to start with this one because yeah it actually was a um, to start watching to start with Fellini by watching eight and a half you're kind of entering into his psyche more than if you started at the beginning like you're kind of getting to know Fellini by watching it and that informs when you go back and watch La Strada or Nights of Cabiria, which I two films which I also love very much. You have a different bit of information about the filmmaker than you would had you started, say, watching from re- in release order of his films. Uh, I think that's interesting about it because it's so it's so beautiful, but it also has that filmmaker's struggle at the heart of it that you understand what he's been going through. And um, I don't know what else to say, about it. it's just so beautifully filmed. And if you haven't seen Eight and a Half. Especially if you're a young young student that hasn't seen eight and a half yet, do it now. It's a perfect time for you to get your eyes open a little bit. It will. Well, I showed it this past
1: year, and it was a lot of students hadn't seen it, and it's still challenging, but it's not as challenging maybe as it probably would have been if you saw it in 1963. It shifts back and forth in time and space. It works a lot of the themes that Fellini would be obsessed with in a lot of his movies, but there is something about it that I think is kind of a great gateway Fellini movie in a way. It, it, for sure. it sort of gives you everything you kind of need to understand what Fellini is. For, and I hope that some of those students, as we get ready to watch Satyricon, Eight and a Half is a much easier way to get into Fellini <laughs> than Satyricon. So, right.
0: Obviously. I I I think. I'm trying to think what comes after, but for me, some of his, once he gets into the color era of his career with Satyra Khan, with uh, um, Amr Kord, movies like that, I like those movies. I think I'm in that more, in that sweet spot of Fellini where I love the black and white. I love the, I actually like the female centric films that he made with his wife. Uh, yeah. Nights of Kabiria is probably my favorite um, of his films. And it's interesting because you have these, Female centric or female point of view films that he made with her, Nights of Cabiria, Estrada, and then you get your La Dolce Vita. It's like he has these two people uh, that play his two sides or something, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. so you get this lusty point of view in in La Dolce Vita, and then Eight and a Half as well. You start to get this you, you, pretty unapologetically lusty. Uh, libidinous man, right? <laughs> Where yeah. you're, which is very much Fellini. And you can see it in even earlier in his films, just the way he shot women, uh, the way, you know, children finding women on the beach and being <laughs> chased around by these like voluptuous ladies. Uh, He's just had this interesting point of view. I like that middle ground. I'm I'm a little worried about you showing satiric on the kids these days. I'm not sure what they're gonna make of that. But eight and a half though We
1: show it every year, so it's like yeah. you know, good luck. Like you are you're, you're yeah, it's we're school. grown ups. You're, we're we're grown ups here and we can watch movies that are gonna challenge us a little you're bit. You're a university it's,
0: student. You gotta watch these things. Yes. To me though, eight and a half, if you are a film fan, uh, um, you know, if you have certain directors you like, you certainly go hey, I like Terry Gilliam a lot. You watch Eight and a Half, you go, oh, boy. Yeah, I see where Terry Gilliam got a lot of his chops. And tar- Terry Gilliam's like the cartoonist version of Fellini in a lot of ways where you can see that um, maybe more cartoony-structured kind of idea about visuals, but you see the dreamy nature of it as well and the larger-than-life compositions where things are shot to look larger than they really are. And I don't know, uh, kind of just riffing on And then, of course, Stardust Memories. Stardust Memories is like a re- weird remake of Eight and a Half. Yeah, uh, visually, yeah, sure. There's a lot of visual stuff in it. Just, uh, thinking about Sharon Stone's little cameo in Stardust Memories right well, away in the beginning so with heinous- him trapped.
1: You know, it's it's the trapped in the car. Yeah, thing. You know, <sighs> it's a train w- with with Woody Allen's movie, but it's he's working the same notion.
0: I remember when I saw Eight and a Half, I was playing around with my crappy little short film ideas, and thinking about that opening before the dream opening and how I, how could I pull off shots? Like I just thinking about the, how imaginative it is to have like a, 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 a rope hanging from a leg. And it looks like, you know, you're a kite from the kite's point of view, but you're, yeah. you know, and then that cut to him waking up and I believe it's a hand comes up and you're just like jarred out of the dream. I don't know. He just had such a grip on that uh, style of filmmaking and that dream like nature, uh, you know, that is what film is. A lot of people can't capture it in that literal of a sense or
1: it's funny because of the movies that I've got listed here right off the bat, as I'm looking alphabetically, there are several of these that have that dream quality. Yeah. Like I certainly, certainly black Sabbath, the Mario Bava movie, uh, which is, you know, built in different sections is very dreamlike. The colors, the associations of, of image to image as it's as it's editing, and then Hitchcock makes the birds this year as well, mm-hmm. and that's 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 a nightmare, <laughs> but it's definitely there's there's some weird dreamy surrealism about that movie.
4: How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my forthcoming lecture. It is about the birds and their age-long relationship with man. It will be seen in theatres like this across the country. In my lecture, I hope to make you all aware of our good friends, the birds. Theirs is a noble history, and through it all, man has played a conspicuous part. This cave drawing is one of man's earliest sketches of his feathered friend. One can see at once the loving care with which the artist depicted his subject. The story of man and his friends, the birds, is filled with many fine examples of ways in which these noble creatures have added to the beauty of the world. Take this plumed hat from the period of Charles I. How proud the birds must have been to have their feathers plucked out to brighten man's drab life. Here we have a later model, a refinement of the first. Here man, or rather woman, thought enough of the birds to have an entire one as a decoration. It's quite dead, of course. Naturally, The egg plays a very prominent part in my lecture, not a word about which came first, however. I don't believe in dealing with controversial matters. Thousands of years ago, man was satisfied merely to steal an egg from a nest and use it for food. Now he has perfected this process by imprisoning each hen in a separate cage and by scientifically manipulating the lights so that she doesn't fall into the rut of the old 24-hour Thus, he can induce the bird to reach fantastic heights of egg production. Originally, there were many varieties of birds on Earth. Some have become extinct. The great orc, the passenger pigeon, and the famous dodo bird have all disappeared. Actually, they didn't exactly disappear. They were simply killed off. But of course, this is nature's way. Man merely hurries the process along whenever he can be of help. Man and birds have been responsible for a great many advances in our civilization. For example, the bird was the inspiration for the invention of gunpowder, and it was his speed that brought about the development of the shotgun. But man has not been unmindful of his debt to the bird. We have honored our feathered friends in many ways. We cage birds and show them off proudly in most of our zoos and the turkey is traditionally our guest of honour at Thanksgiving. I suspect you never realise that if it weren't for birds, even some of our pastimes would suffer noticeably. Duck hunting, for example. Granted, bagging a fellow hunter can be diverting, but the supply is rather limited. I hope you don't mind if I have something to eat, but I'm rushed today. Planning the lecture has been most educational for me. I've begun to feel very close to the birds and have developed a real sympathy for our little... What was I saying? Oh, yes, I've come to feel very close to the birds and have come to realise how they feel when... I don't think I'll eat just now. Hardly proper with all of you here. Surely the birds appreciate all we've done for them don't you? Beautiful cage, fresh water, no the birds to bother you, none of that blinding sunlight. Oh, now why would he do that? Most peculiar, what on earth?
0: it yeah. is uh mostly i think what informs that feeling is the lack of music i honestly think had he had he uh had herman do a, a traditional score it wouldn't have had that feeling because there's multiple points in that movie where you're not being bailed out by music right yeah especially i'm thinking about her being trapped in the room when she's trapped in the room with the birds and she really gets her she gets her ass kicked. That was the big time where Tippi Hedren really gets it from the Birds. It's like you almost want some kind of music to bail you out at some point in that scene because it's so brutal. And uh, I don't know. I, I I think the choice that's one of the things that makes that movie great. I'm not the biggest Birds fan. I think it's got some problems, but uh, one of the things that makes it really stand out in the wake of Psycho, where Hitchcock's just made this like sea change of a movie and he wanted to do it again well one of the ways he did it was by taking the music out and just having herman produce this bird sound effect score which is so haunting
1: even that series of jump cuts into the face of the corpse who's had its eyes pecked out is done without any music there's no sting there and i think that's just so troubling and disturbing and yeah it's great it's
0: the most surreal point in the movie when the fire so with the big bird attack on on bodega bay and she's in the diner and they're looking out the window and that guy lights the cigarette right not realizing there's the gas and there's those four i think it's four cuts of her watching the gas
1: from one direction to the next, to the next, and, to the next. Yeah. And
0: it's only scored by the sound of fire, I think, and some birds. You know, yeah. that's usually the most surreal. I know that I've shown that movie to someone and they couldn't they couldn't take that moment seriously.
1: Well, I know but, it's kind of like the lions in Battleship Potemkin when mm-hmm. they cut to the he cuts from the sleeping lion to the standing lion to the roaring lion. These mm-hmm. three statues. Boom boom, boom. And you kind of can't take that seriously either because it's like, okay, I get it. I see what you're doing. Right. It's so completely plastic.
0: Of course, that's a little bit, that's a different era. Or, literally, <laughs> Battleship Potemkin is when cinema is being discovered. <laughs> like, that's well, yeah, a, such but a that's my era. point.
1: With Hitch- mm-hmm. Hitchcock as an editor, you know, he's always leaning into the plasticity of the medium. He's right. doing exactly what Eisenstein was doing all those years earlier, and he's quite happy with it because his also his brain is a silent movie director brain right and he never really moves away from that. He's always thinking about image against
0: image you know it's interesting Russian montage because it's just I'm just reminded too of a different another filmmaker who embraced the plasticity a little bit more so than some of his compatriots. It, uh, would be Francois Truffaut. And just the year before in Jules the Gym, he does that intro of her that also does the four cuts around her head. Do you remember that? And I always thought that was fantastic. It, it gave her a statuesque kind of quality, or like, I don't know if this is a proper way to think, but it was sort of presenting her as this art piece, which becomes the center, centerpiece of the movie, is there, you know, the whole running through the museum and so on. I think that there, she's kind of being. Truffaut's kind of presenting her as this statue to gaze upon for a moment and see the beauty of, you know? Yeah, but,
1: and it's exactly what Godard does with contempt the same this year, '63, right. with Bridget Bardot. He yeah. he's using her as this thing to look at, this this object of the gaze. And he had been it had been demanded of him that he include nudity, mm-hmm. and so he decides to put her in the nude in the most kind of non erotic ways that he possibly can to show her off uh it's you know she's still gorgeous uh but I think it's funny you said that with so we've got you know we've pinged Fellini Truffaut and Godard right now in a
0: triangle and then Godard contempt kind of circles back to eight and a half as being meta as well we see the cinematographer of contempt at least once in the movie contempt correct in the camera yeah and and so he's he's really hanging a lampshade on the meta quality where Godard okay Goddard and me don't get along hundred percent I'm not always a fan sometimes I think he was a little he, he was a little pretentious i it's an overused word, but in a way, to me, he was a little bit too up his own ass a lot of times in, the, in that era, especially. And, well, not in that and era, perverse, especially, but. And perverse, yes, too, willing to
1: just torture the audience.
0: I'm yeah. certainly not saying that I don't like Jean Luc Godard films. To me, they're academic a lot of times. Breathless is a movie I'd love to sit down and talk about way more than I want to sit down and watch again. Now, I love Woman is a Woman. Other films by him, I can sit, Being of Outsiders, very entertaining. Love those films. Contempt, I like it. It's actually beautiful to look at. And I've seen it on the big screen. It's 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 a wonderful film to look at. But at the same time, some of the meta qualities, Fellini had a charming way of presenting it in a filmic way, as in, I understand the artifice. I'm I'm recognizing the artifice here, but I'm not going to completely break it down, break down the fourth wall completely the way Godard would be like, you're going to see my film crew, the actual one I use. Yeah. You know, to me, it's a yeah. little... I guess it might have been more uh, innovative at the time. To me, it just feels very art school. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hate yeah, to be that sure. way about it, Godard. Some people are going to listen to this and be like, are you crazy? He's not my favorite French New Wave filmmaker. I'll just say that. But again, we got similarities. We got three movies that we were just interconnected naturally without playing. By the way, folks, we did not sit down with a list of movies. <laughs> we're actually just kind of running into movies uh, because we're looking for the interconnectivity and it's there. So And and, Jules and Jim being 62, Contempt being 63, we're right around that Bond era. Wonder, how much is Terrence Young, just as an aside, how much is Terrence Young watching, do you think, Jules and Jim?
1: Well, as we're going to discuss, when we get to From Russia With Love, and I'll just say it in passing because I think everybody knows it, he was very conscious of last year at Marienbad with the first scene in From Russia With Love. So he... You know, he has a European sensibility. He had prior to the Bond films made a peplum with Alan Ladd called Duel of Champions in Italy, and boy, thank God James Bond came along for him because he might have been stuck, <laughs> probably having a great time in Italy making these movies. But, uh, but I yeah, he's he is very much an international filmmaker and very much conscious of of these things, and. In fact, I also wonder about Fleming himself. Uh, I think when we get to Carim Bay, we're gonna talk a little bit about whether or not Fleming had seen Lestrada because there are some some similarities there and we'll just leave that out yeah, as sure. a tease to when we get there. So I think the consciousness was was there and that's the beauty of these Bond films is they are this weird hybrid. They're American but they're also British. And they're and certainly with Terrence Young involved, there's a continental quality to these movies that I think makes makes them really wonderful artifacts of the late 50s, early 60s, ideas in movies and how things were going to shift. And that becomes part of the fun of talking about James Bond films in general because as cinema evolves, sometimes the Bond films are ahead of the curve and sometimes they're behind it. Right. And for me, that that's the, as I've gotten older, that remains the most fascinating thing for me about James Bond movies is where they fit in terms of the culture.
0: Well, I mean, one cultural shift that's happening at the moment that we shouldn't ignore if we're going to talk about why Bond might've, might've been a splash um, and why this particular year, 1963 was also a strong year for British cinema in general. We're right in the middle of the British invasion, right? So the popularity of England as a cultural center is, is, on the rise heavily this year, correct? Yeah. And so I don't think that can be ignored. I I certainly think the Beatles and Bond go side by side in a certain way, just as far as the general interest in British culture and British pop culture. So this year we also get... just some landmark a movie um I've seen that I can't talk too much about, but it's a landmark British film, Billy Lyre, John Schlesinger's film, introduced Julie Christie to the world, which she becomes a major phenomenon for what, the next ten years at least. Uh other uh, this sporting life comes out in nineteen sixty three, uh Tom Jones, best picture winner, correct? In nineteen sixty three? Yeah. Uh, yeah and major and phenomenon. Joseph-
1: no. Joseph Losey's These Are the Damned, yeah. which if you haven't seen it, sometimes it's called The Damned, but it gets confused with the other movie, The Damned, the one with, I think, with, was it Dirk Bogart? Mm. Um, but Joseph Losey's These Are the Damned has uh, Oliver Reed as a, like, a teddy boy, and it has this real youth in revolt vibe smashed up with a psychic science fiction story. It's completely out of its mind but it's an amazing time capsule. Black
2: leather, black leather, smash, smash, smash. Black leather, black leather, crash, crash, crash. Black leather, black leather, kill, kill, kill. I got that. Black leather
5: rock. Animals dressed as human beings. Smash, smash, smash. A game for the wild ones. Played with the passion of the damned.
4: Don't ever do that again, Joni.
6: I'll do what I like, King.
4: Do you think I'll
3: let a man put his dirty hands on you?
5: fleeing for their lives, leaving one hell for another. Escaping from what? From whom? What goes on behind these barbed wires? Who and what do these ferocious dogs guard? And who are these children? Where do they come from? To whom do they belong?
6: Before
4: you get yourself excited, King, touch the little boy's face. He's
6: dead.
5: He's dead, i tell you. Fear so real that you can touch it. Terror so sinister that it makes the flesh creep. These are the people who become one with the damned. The rich American on an English vacation. The beautiful girl, decoy for a gang of thugs. More sinned against than sinning. The Swedish artist who chiseled strange shapes out of stone. And the scientist with a secret who fought the shape of things to come.
6: I... I
5: your secrets, Bernard. If I were to tell you even a little bit about... what you call my secrets... I might be condemning you to death. Why are you doing this? What's it all for? What are you trying to make out of these children?
7: Answer me. Will you answer me?
1: And it has an American lead in addition to Oliver Reed being in it. So again, we're back to this co-production idea of putting an American actor in a British film. Uh, So it has a black and white kitchen sink quality to it, even though it's a fantasy film. Right. I guess the other thing to mention is Cleopatra because a film that started out as an English movie or at least filming in England and then had so many problems that it ultimately had to be recast and moved to Italy with Elizabeth Taylor in both versions of it, uh, and, and if you come back to the way that uh, Godard presents Brigitte Bardot in Contempt, and you think about the opportunities that arise to present Elizabeth Taylor in various stages of undress and, you know, of obj- objectification and inviting us to look at her, that's really similar. I mean, it's, it, you can put Cleopatra and Contempt together in a weird way, I think.
0: Yeah, and of course, Cleopatra has its place in history as being this massive flop.
1: It cost so much money that even though it was a big hit, it didn't make back its money because they'd spent so damn much that they just couldn't recoup. And that's the thing is, so don't think that nobody went and saw Cleopatra. Everybody went and saw Cleopatra, but they didn't generate enough money to compensate for the terrible uh, budget
0: mess that it was. Yeah, it's one of those unique uh, stories where it's, it's understood as a flop because it was a flop from the, an accounting point of view, but it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a flop because nobody went to see it, and it closed after a weekend, you know, or anything like that. But it did change. Certainly changed. We're right, uh, right on the cusp. We're getting close to the American, the American new wave of sorts. Right, we're about four years, three years away.
1: Right.
0: Um, so it's starting to change how studios are looking at financing films also we're getting to the point where other entities are buying the studios which is going to change how studio films are made where mm-hmm. you get this weird <laughs> you get this weird confluence of corporate interest giving way to art which changed drastically by the late 70s but it was you know you got like bluedorn at paramount bringing in a young guy who's willing to take chance on artists and bluedorn's like whatever you say uh, go for it.
1: Yeah, because they were buying movie studios as loss leaders. They right. weren't buying them thinking they could make any money with them. They were just becoming one more corporate holding. And yep. so it wasn't until The Exorcist, French Connection, Jaws, Star Wars, and The Godfather, those are the five you know the, that ultimately started to suggest to, to corporations that you could buy a studio and actually make money with it.
0: Especially Star Wars because of the ancillary... Right. It wasn't just hey we can sell tickets anymore. That's where we went. It's where it all went wrong, it's been said many times. Uh I just say get, to get back to 1963 specifically. We have some big hits, you know, big memorable hits of Hollywood as well, things that that came off great like The Great Escape. That might be my favorite movie of 1963. I don't know. Hours ago. Minutes ago. These
8: men were behind barbed wire, locked in the strongest cage that man could devise. These men plotted, these men dared, these men lived. The great escape. This was the camp. These were the staggering odds.
7: This is a new camp. It has been built to hold you and your men. It is organized to incorporate all we have learned of security measures. We have in effect put all our rotten eggs in one basket and we intend to watch this basket carefully.
3: Very wise.
7: There will be no escapes from this camp.
3: How many are you taking out? 250. 250? Yeah. You're crazy. You ought to be locked up. You too. 250 guys just walking down the road just like that.
8: These were the men. Hilts, the Cooler King who broke every rule as fast as the Germans made them. Hendley, the scrounger. He'd come up with a baby elephant if the men needed one.
4: Where's your kit? This is it. The rest was confiscated in the last
6: shakedown. The goons didn't appreciate some of my more personal items. Such as? Bartlett,
8: Big X. The prime mover behind this true, incredible story. He held their lives in the palm of his hand. Ramsey, the planner, ready to take the rap for every man in the camp. Danny, the tunnel king. He dug 16 escape tunnels in 16 different prisons. The Germans still have him. Sedgwick, the manufacturer, he can make anything out of anything else and make it work. These were the reckless defiant men. These men plotted, these men dared, these men lived. The great escape the great drama the great entertainment the great adventure begins with the great escape
0: uh, the great escape was certainly a big big hit still memorable huge deal to me when I was a kid growing up uh just adore the movie kind of a british centric film in a way as well when you think about it it's far more of the characters i mean there's only three americans in the in the movie correct like as yeah. there's a whole sequence that of about fourth of july and they're the only three ones that celebrate it so really great escape is actually a british story as well i don't know if that has anything to do with james bond i think the great escape is just your good old-fashioned traditional war movie and based on but a true story. where is it
1: filmed so, again, we're back to this kind of runaway production where you go go to Europe to make this film. It employs all of these international actors to be in it. I can't imagine this movie being made in the 50s the way that it's made in the 60s. No. I'm... So, you know, it represents, a, again, a just an absolutely perfect point in time. And I wonder whether young people even are aware of The Great Escape now. It what? was such, for us, it was such a movie you watch when you're 10 or 11 years old, you know, and you and I are, are separated by what, about 15 years, but we both saw it as kids at around 10, and, and I don't know so my son has ever seen
0: it. Archer's, we watched it. Archer liked yeah. it. Yeah. Um. And uh, and the awareness was raised, uh, the great awareness raiser of, of 60s and 70s cinema, Quentin Tarantino, of course, made a big point of, of, Bringing it up in in, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I thought was very funny. So there's at least that awareness. You know, Tarantino fans, if they didn't know about it already, young Tarantino fans probably went out and watched it after that to see what that was all about. But to me, I mean, it's a universal story. Like, it's one of those – I've always said if I ever got that Kathleen Kennedy call – hey, what kind of Star Wars movie would you want to make or TV show? It would be The Great Escape, Star Wars Great Escape. That's exactly what I would want to do because <laughs> it's so universal and there's so many things you can do with different – all the characters, you have a, a menagerie of characters. You have yeah, yeah, yeah. a great situation like that. that's always uh, it's always relevant in wartime. You know,
1: It does kind of make sense, doesn't it? They've done A Men on a Mission. They've done all these others
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, subgenres of the action film. Star Wars has not done the escape movie yet. I bet it's only a matter of time.
0: Yeah, you just have to come up with a Star wars um element of how how why is it inescapable? You know, what you must be on a planet that has some sort of security system that you have to somehow unlock. But well, uh,
1: since we're in these blockbuster or at least, you know, what we con- what we think of as traditional Hollywood movies that are being made, n- n- films that aren't necessarily pushing the envelope, I should mention charade because it's both Bond adjacent and it's a very much a Hollywood movie star kind of production
7: do we know each other why do you think we're going to
1: I don't know how would I know
7: because I already know an awful lot of people and until one of them dies I couldn't possibly meet anyone else well if anyone goes on the critical list let me know mm. as you can see she was in serious trouble but she still found time to enjoy herself
3: Mrs. Lampert
7: morning now you could wake up dead of course she never had as much fun as her husband now he knew how to relax you see it all began when he got off the train now there's a relaxed husband and he's probably think I killed him instant divorce you mean from then on her life was one round of enjoyment Entertainment. Ah! Enchantment? Ah! Ah! What are you doing in here?
5: I'm having a nervous breakdown.
7: But her life wasn't always that gay. There were times when she was in dire jeopardy. Hasn't it occurred to you that I'm having a tough time keeping my hands off you? Oh, you should see your face. What's the matter with it? It's lovely. When we played our charade, we
0: were like children posing, playing a game.
7: Reggie, got you. Da,
8: da, 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 da. Waterproof?
7: Mel? No. You're Charles Voss's wife. Now that he's dead, you're their only lead. Mr. Bartholomew, if you're trying to frighten me, you're doing a first rate job.
0: charade is is one of those movies where you start asking questions about scheduling had they seen dr no when they started making charade I don't know it's real close um I I didn't look up to, you know the stats on or uh, production to schedule for charade but it feels like it could either be a reaction to dr no at least in some ways or just a coincidence you know that it has the similarities because the thing is sort of happening in storytelling at the time. And then visually, because we have the same title design d- designer, correct?
1: I think so. I know he, I know he did um, Arabesque, which is the other Stanley Donnan bond slash Hitchcock movie. So it has titles by Mor- Morris Bender. Uh-huh. I assume the music's Henry Mancini, Mancini right? Mancini, Cause that's yeah. who, that's who did Arabesque. Uh-huh. It's got Cary Grant in it. It's working, it's working Hitchcock themes and hit set pieces. So it may also just be that both Dr. No and charade are coming out of that north by northwest mindset you uh, know
0: to me charade is like bond meets north by northwest and to catch a thief because it has that more colorful light uh lightness to it like to catch a thief does where north by northwest i always feel like is a little bit more of a cynical film uh yeah charade's not a cynical film i don't think i don't think you would say that about charade i'm trying to think if you would i don't think so even even um Mathau's character is yeah he could be a cynical character but he's played up for comedy so much that yeah, you're, it's
1: pretty light it's, and that's the one that George Kennedy's
0: the bad guy right Kennedy's the bad guy Mathau's the, the like double yeah. agent that's always yeah. you're never quite sure what side of things he's on I mean I love I love charade I have a soft spot for charade it's also a little it's a little bit fluffy and some people like I told you my dad just was like oh it's too cute Way too cute for my taste. I'm like, I could see that. I kind of like the cuteness. I like the title. I love the title design. I think it's fun when it breaks up into multiple frames at the end of the movie, indicative of the time. But it's not Bond. It's, it's, it's got, you go, okay, I could see these are being made at the same time. And there's something informing them that's similar. But it's certainly not playing, it's not rough edged the way Bond can be. Like Carrie right. Grant is not going to slap Audrey Hepburn.
1: That's right. And And I would say that that the same goes for Donovan's Reef, which also comes out this same year, which is Hollywood, movie stars, John Wayne, Lee Marvin, brawling, raising kids in Hawaii. You know, it's like, it's it's that, it's family movie, you know? Right. And as much as the Bond films said, oh, the kids love the Bond films, There's still an adult quality to those movies, you know, and and they get sillier as they goes on and they get a little little less uh, threatening as they go on. But certainly Dr. No and From Russia With Love have a lot of nasty
0: little edges to them. Well, I showed From Russia With Love to my son, who's eight years old, and I kind of half expected him to walk out and go play on his own. Because to me, from Rush with Love, in my memory, has always been one of the drier bonds. Like, doc- there's Dr. No, it's rough around the edges because of its-, its the first one and low production uh, budget and so on. From Rush with Love, I've always thought of it as being kind of dry compared to the other bonds like Goldfinger or yeah, especially You Only Live Twice. So I thought, well, I'll show this to him, introduce him to the concept of Bond. He'll go off and play on his own. And then one day I'll say, okay, we'll watch this one and I'll show him You Only Live Twice which he'll think is big, colorful fun, and he loves volcanoes and <laughs> all that stuff. Well, as soon as he saw Blofeld's cat, immediately if there's a cat in the movie, it's going to catch his attention. And then he he was all with it the whole way, and I'll probably repeat this a couple of times, but every time Red Grant showed up, he was like, oh, there's that guy again. He was kind of waiting for Grant to show up through the whole movie. I think that's what was keeping him going. And he ended up really enjoying it. But to speak on the adult themed side, it opened up a couple of conversations I could have with him, which I'm a firm believer not in abstinence from touchy subjects, but exposure to touchy subjects, so we can have a conversation about it. So he understands it as he grows up. So yeah, there was certainly a point where I said, Archer, it's very old fashioned and very wrong to slap a woman. And he goes, Dad, I know that already. <laughs> That's what he said. I was like, well good. As long as we must it. but
1: well, no. I mean, that being said, I am going to move to towards three w- much more adult movies in from '63. Mm-hmm. Um, and since we're, I'm just kind of going alphabetically. But I got, I got three H's for you. Okay. And we can talk about them in any order we want. But the Haunting, High and Low, and HUD. And I think it's fair to say all of those are adult
0: movies. Yes. Yeah, I would not show Archer HUD. I'm not going or to the do haunting. Or, or the, the haunting. Haunt- I mean the haunting maybe, you know, when he's a little older. A little older. Like, yeah, it's in order scary. of in order <laughs> high and low could be okay. Uh yeah. but, you know, the sca- it's kind of sca- the idea of child kidnapping is something that bothered me a lot when I was a kid, so I don't really yeah. deal with that idea. Yeah, yeah. But all these movies are great. I am uh, two of them are major rewatches for me. I've uh, Hud and High and Low are movies that we well, discussed High and Low We, when we did our yeah. Russo episode the haunting i've seen i'm not 100% like sure i remember it all so you're more of a you probably have a lot more to say about the haunting than me but
1: well i just think about it because of the you know the lesbian theme and of course there's a connection with from Russia with love with that but just the psychology of the haunting is is much more disturbing and it's maybe not as dark as the innocence but it's still it's a pretty effective film and it's black and white scope. It's beautiful to look at. Mm -hmm. It definitely comes out of, out of a studio system. And and yet it's pushing all sorts of psychological buttons that again, I don't think you would have seen the haunting made in 1953. Right. right? I think it would have been too much.
0: And you're definitely not seeing HUD made in 1953.
4: HUD, how'd a man like you come to be a son to me.
3: Well, oh, that's easy. I wasn't no bundle left on a doorstep, wasn't found in no bulrushes. You got the same feeling below your belt as any other man. That's how you got stuck with me for a son. It turned you sour on me, not that i give a damn.
8: You don't care about people, Hud you don't give a damn about him. And Dad? You live just for yourself. And that makes you not fit to live with.
4: Hi. What are you gawking at?
3: You having words with this youngster about something? I'm about to put him into the hospital. Is that so? Why, has he been bothering you or something? I don't know. He ain't bothering me. It's her he's bothering. Well, you didn't offer him a little encouragement to uh, find a chance, did you, young lady? No. That's funny. I was sitting all the way over there, and I got a little encouraged. Must be the way you move around inside that dress. All right, smart guy. I'll take you instead. Oh, I don't want to be hoggish. Lon, you want a piece of him? Well. Wow. Oh, Well, the only question I ever ask any woman is: what time is your husband coming home?
6: I'd say I've been asking a little more finesse in my time.
3: I'll bring you a two-pound box of candy and maybe a bottle of perfume from the drugstore.
6: Oh, thanks. I've done my time with one cold-blooded bastard. I'm not looking for another.
3: It's too late, honey. You already found it.
1: A friend of mine who teaches at another college showed HUD and got a lot of response from students saying that it should have had a trigger warning.
0: Yeah. And
1: that it was, you know,
0: too rough. It's rough. It's it's Martin Ritt who he he made socially conscious films, you know, with earlier in his career. Specifically, I'm thinking about the great John Cassavetti's Sidney Poitier film, edge of the city where he, really not indicative of anything else that's happening at the time, makes this movie about a, a black man and a white man having this amazing friendship and the loyalty to each other. If you watch that movie, it's like, I hate to use like the word bromance or anything, but boy, they just really lean into this wonderful, unapologetic love affair between two men that's completely non-sexual, but yet so outside of the box for what people were, were seeing at the time. He definitely comes from, you think of it, you think of him as sort of an Aliyah Kazan type filmmaker, a little younger, the next generation of that style of filmmaker. Edge of the City is kind of a more complex even, I think, on the waterfront. And so he was always willing to deal with touchy subjects. So he brought that concept to, uh, to the Western in a way. With HUD, and we're talking about a Larry McMurtry story, correct? Um, yeah, for, it is. And we have Paul Newman. Who? What, what? What is Paul Newman's status as a movie star? It's in 1963. What have we seen him in? The Hustler, for sure. He is a cad. I mean, he is just an asshole in HUD. It had to be difficult for some people to handle this. He's playing assholes like crazy yeah. at this point. Okay, you might be because right.
1: Because yeah. left-handed gun, somebody up there likes me. Cat on a hot tin roof. Isn't that funny? Not that, the nicest guy. Like I think that's that true. was. I mean, right. I mean, that's his archetype. He was he was like the kind of asshole that Michael Douglas, you know, went played for a for a period of, in his career, and and that was a reason that my father in law never liked Paul Newman movies because he always thought he was such a jerk in all of them. Isn't you know, that you so he strange? Because he's like the, didn't he do was the Sweetest
0: him. man, uh, by all accounts, I've always heard he was a wonderful, sweet man. He shot. Mr. and Mrs. Bridge here in Kansas City, and people I've heard people tell stories of him and Joanne Woodward being here and being just so wonderful to the community. <laughs> and so I, I don't know, it's just funny. I forget sometimes that he did kind of make his way because in The Hustler he's a jerk. I yeah. mean, yeah, yeah, God, he's, he's a jerk. He's, he's got <laughs> a, so I was wrong. I was coming for the wrong chip way. on
1: his shoulder through a lot of his movies.
0: In Hud, he's almost a. I'd almost call him a villain, though. I mean, he's yeah. just. Yeah, he, he seems to be antagonizing everything just out of pure self-centeredness uh,
1: there is a lot of people at the time when hud was made that couldn't understand why anybody would make a movie where you were going to spend th- that much time with such a, a horrible person right and that was that came out in the criticisms of the film i think it's still a valid kind of take on that movie i don't like to watch hud i i have a lot of trouble with it it's well, it's a bit too much for me it's
0: kind of a nihilistic film it has that great line that great nihilist line you know, where someone tries to tell the young man, you know, his father's just died, and they give him the old cliche, well, he's in a better place now. And the and the boy says, only if dirt's better than air. And that's yeah. just so <laughs> nihilistic, I, but I love it. It's like, that speaks to me a little bit more than maybe it should. But, I mean, that, 1963, that's a hard line to take for a, for your Midwestern movie audience. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's, so things are changing, you know. I think Martin Ritt doesn't. Get, sometimes I think Martin Ritt doesn't get enough credit for how much he brought, how much he changed cinema leading into what we understand as this, you know. Well, yeah, American and then, then you wave. know he
1: makes the Molly Maguires, and it's this huge bomb, mm-hmm. and it's a shame because it's a really good movie. But it just the audience just wasn't interested. They weren't having any of it. Yeah it's I don't know if it was too too much of a lefty movie or I, I don't know. I um, still
0: need to watch it, Mitch. We might need to do a Molly Maguire. We, well, we did the Connery episode with Jason once. We might need to do another one and have uh, yeah that'd be uh, good. we haven't done a post uh, post-mortem Sean Connery episode yet, so.
1: Well, in contrast to HUD, you could look at a couple of other westerns that were coming out that year and see where the comfortable Western was, which one it was for for Texas, which is basically the Rat Pack in the West, <laughs> uh, as well as being joined by um, by Ursula Andrus and Anita Ekberg, which makes a connection to Dr. No, and also to call me Buana which is a Bob Hope comedy with Anita Ekberg produced by Saltzman and Broccoli that's featured in uh, From Russia with Love, which we will get to. That, that was 63 as well. So they had yeah. a movie come out in between Dr. No and From Russia with Love, which was Call Me Buona. The other The other Western was McClintock which if you've seen that, it's the one with the big fight in the mud and it's John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara and it's not the least bit challenging and it's very entertaining <laughs> and um, it's definitely, I, you know, who knows? He might, he might slap her but not the way that uh, Paul Newman treats people in HUD. You know, I don't, right. you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those battle of the sexes, yeah. John Wayne. I think it's, I think it's Macla- Andrew McLaughlin who directed it. Um, I just remember it having this big mud fight at the end and seeing it repeatedly on the CBS late movie.
0: Yeah, as many John Wayne movies as I grew up with, that was not one of them. I don't recall that movie. But isn't it funny about John Wayne, just an aside, that he makes these two kind of groundbreaking, challenging Westerns with The Searchers and Red River, and then he goes right back to make it. Did he ever make another challenging film again? He made
1: one, his last movie, The Shootist. The Shootist, so that's... Which would have been a a, a reconsideration of his. But he's also still pretty... um, you know, it's a it's a very autumnal. You like him. He, he's mm-hmm. not really questioning what kind of a killer he is. It ain't unforgiven. I'll, right. I'll put it that way.
0: And it's in that era. Like, basically, if you want to make a serious movie, Duke, you're going to have to play with these kind of ideas. Who knows? I don't know how much he liked the shootist or how he felt about it. But, uh, you know, he's making he gets an Oscar for True Grit. That's not challenging. I love True Grit. One of my favorite books. Great he gets story. an Oscar.
1: He didn't he get it for Rooster Cogburn or did he get it for no, he True got it Grit? For True he got Grit. it for True Grit. Right? Yeah,
0: and uh, you know then he makes a sequel to True Grit, which is right. Even as a kid, I didn't like that movie <laughs> Rooster Cogburn. No, but, it's not
1: very good. But somebody got nominated. Did Hepburn get nominated maybe. for that? Some there was some kind of weird uh, nomination that you're kind of like kind of a head know. scratcher with that movie.
0: And it's funny because that True Grit, the material of True Grit, can be challenging. They just chose not Henry Hathaway <laughs> chose not to make it that way. Uh, anyway, that's all beside the point, but.
1: Well, I should mention in terms of these uh, back to some more European or slash runaway productions from 63, you've got Jason and the Argonauts, yep. which that's pretty amazing that, uh, Cleopatra and Jason of the Argonauts come out the same year. That's, that's pretty, pretty impressive year in 1963 for those two movies. And then a couple of European art films that I think are still just extraordinary, which are the leopard and Jedex. Jedex is the Franju film. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the leopard is Visconti, and it's just this amazing, gorgeous, beautiful, long. You just kind of sink into it. Jet X is this sort of pulpy take on um, comic book French comic books. Both are extraordinary movies. Yeah. both probably never could have been made in any other time but
0: 1963. You know. Yeah. So what are we? What are we really saying then? You know about Bond. But from Russia with love about Bond and about the future of Bond as as looking through it, the lens of what was being done in cinema in nineteen sixty
1: three. Well, it ain't McClintock. It's not old mm-hmm. Hollywood movie stars in comfortable places. It's a scrapper of a movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Both Doctor No and From Russia with Love. They're interested in challenging the mores of cinema they're cynical they're way i mean from rush with love's pretty cynical yeah and uh, pretty mean an adult in a way Mm -hmm. uh and the escapism it's not going to be goldfinger right it's not goldfinger's going to do something else when you get there yeah but we're still in this period where i i still think both of those movies are kind of radical films for the times
0: yeah i i had a lot of negative things to say about dr no and it's, it's my least favorite of the Connery Bond movies. And that's just not going to change. Even going through it the way we did. Honestly, I found just as many problems with it as I found things to like about it. This movie, From Russia With Love, I've always felt uh, that it was a good film. But it's not what I want out of Bond. Which is, I want the more escapist side of Bond. I think it's just how I viewed it as a kid. There's a nostalgia to it. I enjoy that. But then I watched it again the other day. And I watched it in Fabulous 4K and really sat down and said, I'm gonna watch this with the intent of having a real understanding of it going into this season of 7 by Seven. And it was so much better than I remembered. It wasn't as dry as I remembered, though it is more mm-hmm. it's more withheld than your gold fingers and your you only live twice and uh to better or worse, I still like I still like a little over the top bond. But it's it really is kind of a standalone great film, and it has that increased production value to it. I just makes all the... as cheap as that sounds as a, from a critical standpoint. I just appreciate when there's more money on the screen than Doctor <laughs> No. The rough on the edges is fine. And Even all though but,
1: you don't get those crazy Ken Adams sets, you feel like I it's know bigger. that isn't that it feels interesting. Bigger to you,
0: it feels different. It doesn't. I don't know if I'd say it feels bigger. It just feels cleaner. It feels like. Yeah. There aren't those rough cuts. There there's never a moment where I go, What why is the you remember? why is the radio the same volume here and here? Like well, yeah, no and it went, thought to it sound went, design, It went
1: twenty, twenty days, thirty days over budget over schedule. Yeah. It took a lot longer to make, so they had more time. And yeah. so again, that's production values any way you slice it. If you have more time, you have more time to make something work better. Right. So I get it.
0: That I makes mean, sense. To me it's like much more of a comfortable Bond movie to watch as far as just feasting your eyes on it, and um, story wise, it's pretty it's pretty strong. I just think we you know I felt like I might need to warn the audience, or the opposite of warn, and let them know I'm not going to be as negative this year. I think so I was a little worried <laughs> that I was too negative, as if I I hated Doctor No. I don't hate Doctor No. But I don't like Dr. No that much. I really like From Rest With Love. And it's actually, if we keep doing these, it's going to get maybe better and better as we go along. I think I like the movies more and more as they go. So um, I don't know what that says. We are you know we have this topic at hand of the year of 1963. I'm not sure if I'm saying anything about the year. I'm just saying the follow-up, the fact that they, were, they felt comfortable putting more money into it. They knew more what they were doing. They used, in a lot of ways, used the same... Um, people, you know, like part of the quick yeah. turnaround was uh, Maybaum and um, oh shoot, what's her name? Joanna Harwood. Harwood, Harwood, adapted. <laughs> right a no, the The, the and, team.
1: There was a team in yeah. place, and they went from one movie right to the next. You know what movie from 1963 didn't have an extra big budget and lots of time to do what it had to do? What? Sam Fuller's Shot Corridor. Shot Corridor. <laughs>
6: The motion picture screen opens the door to sights you've never seen before. Shock corridor. The medical jungle doctors don't talk about. A labyrinth of twisted detours that both sexes stumble along. Case history number one. Johnny B., brilliant newspaper reporter. Suffering from hallucinations that his sweetheart is his sister.
8: Don't ever do that Don't you ever kiss me like that again What's the
7: matter, what is it Johnny, tell me
6: You're exciting the other places
7: Johnny. by shouting Johnny, how did you
6: meet Diagnosis, erotic dementia Forgive me for saying it Miss Barrett But there's something very strange about this case Case history number two, Kathy B Strip teaser, young, intelligent, beautiful
7: you think I like singing in that sewer with a hot light on my navel? I'm doing it because it pays more than shorthand or clerking or typing.
6: I know that. Cathy's torrid performances, however, reveal her avid reaction to the excitement of male audiences. Diagnosis, manic sensualism. Case history number three, Robert T., a lone Negro student who stepped out of a white university into a straitjacket. Run, Sweet, run! Diagnosis: acute schizophrenia. Don't you dare strike me!
8: I'm pregnant.
6: Shock corridor. The incredibly realistic story that reveals the strange intrigues, the criminal impulses, the obsessions that explode into violence.
5: Because I want her, and nobody's going to keep her. I want her.
6: Then there was a day Johnny was trapped in the ward of love-maddened women. He's He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine.
0: And you can tell. Now, Sam Fuller,
1: don't get me wrong.
0: The Criterion Collection Shot Corridor is on my shelf. I love Shot Corridor. I love it, too. And Sam Fuller's charm as a filmmaker works better with low budgets. He's one of those people where, I mean, I like Sam Fuller movies where he had some money with things he did at Fox. I like those, too. The ones I really tend to love, though, are the ones that are a little rougher around the edges because he was flying by the seat of his pants and because he would... He knew what he wanted. He was going to get it and he did it through independent means a lot of times. He was one of the great, yeah. I mean, who's, who's, who's a greater indie filmmaker before him? I don't know. I mean, he's kind of what I think of as the original indie filmmaker that had success as well. You know,
1: he was lucky that Zanuck liked him because yeah. he did get to make those pictures at Fox that you, you don't have to excuse them at all. Mm-hmm. like, Pick Up on South Street is a great movie. I can't find any flaw with that movie. It does exactly what it sets out to do, and mm. I and I love it, love it, love it. It's probably my favorite Sam Fuller movie. It's mine. And too, then man. you know, House of Bamboo, and um, and the uh, Crimson Kimono. Again, he had a little bit of money, not a lot, but he had a little bit of money. And he had some studio infrastructure helping him out. He had Zanuck. But yeah, when you get to Shock Corridor and the Naked Kiss, <laughs> I mean a boy's operating out there like Mr. Kurtz. He's he's no restraint for sure. doing whatever he wants to do. And they're
0: they're just they're brilliant. They're oh, and, just brilliant. And there's you're really in especially with the naked kiss, you're in that. Um he had that journalistic uh, sort of like shock journalist. Sort of instinct about storytelling, where he was very much the promoted uh, proponent of the nut grab at the beginning of the movie. He's like, "Get you got to get them in that first like two minutes, right?" So you get (laughs) the naked kiss is a bald woman of literally punching you in the face, you know, and swinging a purse at you, I believe. And it's like, wow, if you're not hooked by this movie right away, like you got to know what this woman's, who this woman is, and why she's doing this. You know, you get with the steel helmet to go back to, you know, you get there's a helmet with a hole in it clearly somebody's just been shot in the head get credits then the head raises and the guy's totally alive and you're like i want to know who this guy is who's yeah. this guy that took a bullet to that helmet and he's up and walking around He's fuller that's a whole other episode we should do a we should do a fuller episode sometimes i don't know if we can get a quadfecta out of him that might be a challenge but that, uh, I
1: don't, yeah i don't know if you can get a quadfecta <laughs> out of him sam we'll have, we have to look said. but i i do think that again he's one of those filmmakers that um, my students definitely struggled with Shock Corridor, mm-hmm. and it's a generational thing to some degree. I think it's also a cineast, you know, thing where if you really love movies and then you see Sam Fuller, you're kind of. I hope that it sort of puts an arrow in your heart because there's just you can just sense his crazy conviction and boldness. But I guess you got to look through a few things to get there, and I, I'm not sure that you show a Sam Fuller film to a millennial that the reaction is going to be quite the same
0: <laughs> i mean even even pick up on south street uh you have to believe that she falls in love with richard w- Widmark in like an afternoon and will do a whole lot for him yeah, that's the, true. there's the one thing that i think a lot of people struggle with older films you've got to put away that any belief that it takes time to fall in love with someone. <laughs> That's just one of those things old movies did. And to, I, even I, I love Pickup. It's one of my favorite movies. Literally top of, of my film noir list is Pickup on South Street. Even I go, okay, right. I got to swallow that she fell in love with. Richard Mark, I love him, but he, I, he's also not the easiest to like fall in love with kind of guy. I but we know. can all
1: fall in love with Thelma Ritter.
0: Oh and well that's what that's kind of the emotional core of the movie that really it's the heart of the film. makes yeah, it I move yeah and and I for, I'm forgetting the lead actress's name but she's great uh, uh, and it's a it to me it's a two-hander of a movie too it's got a feminine point of view and I don't know how how appropriate the point of view is presented right? um but it, it at least gives her something to do and and we care about her and she makes her own choices and you know for better or worse anyway we're getting so what do you think about tom jones
1: 1963 never seen
0: tom jones 1963 yeah it's an interesting thing because i it's one it's a best picture winner right and i've definitely gone through my life occasionally thinking i need to see every best picture winner but then so many of them like, why did I spend time watching that? and I've never really heard i I remember growing up that Tom Jones oh Tom Jones, it was such a big phenomenon when it came out It's because it of one hit. scene yeah, it's one scene really? where they're eating at the table, and it's this sexual
1: thing with the way that they're eating, and I think that's the scene that everybody talks about and remembers. I don't like Tom Jones I've See, tried, I have tried again and again, and it's kind of like what your dad was saying about Charade. Mm-hmm. I think it's too cutesy, mm-hmm. and it's, it's. I'm not, I've never been a huge fan of Tony Richardson's movies, sorry, but yeah, I just, um, I just, I, the irony is of course, you know, I'd rather watch Barry Lyndon, and everybody that's disappointed in Barry Lyndon is disappointed in it because it's not Tom Jones. Really. So figure that one out. You know? I mean I, I can't think of two movies that are so completely opposite uh, in terms of how they are approaching their rakish protagonists. And I'll take Barry Lyndon. thank you very much.
0: Well, so didn't the loneliness oh that was I was gonna say loneliness of the long distance runner came out the year before uh Tom Jones. Okay. I was trying to figure out what else it was that it was a Tony Rich big Tony Richardson film. But again, uh uh Loneliness of Long Distance Runner was a big impactful kind of British art film that came out at the time. Um, Yeah. 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 But yeah, Tom Jones, it's one of those things. Everything you just said about it is what I assumed I would feel about it without having seen it. And, and it was just maybe too many of the wrong people were the ones that were talking about Tom Jones. And I'm not sure who those people were, but just remember it being one of those things early when I started to really care about the history of film and, um, and I watched a lot of classic films growing up. That was never one that my dad would want to pick up. And I think maybe because there was probably some sexual content mm-hmm. controversy yeah. about it. So that's one of those that was maybe a little yeah. scandalous. So
1: in that sense, 1963, Tom Jones does is pushing the sexual envelope a little mm-hmm. bit and is being sort of bawdy and raucous. And in that sense, we can kind of connect it back up with, with what was happening with the James Bond movies. So mm-hmm. there's something
0: kind of Bond adjacent with that. And then leading in, you know, in years, it wins Best Picture. So its controversy did not hurt it at the Academy. And then years later, we get films like Midnight Cowboy, which takes it way even way further, I assume. I assume there's...
1: First X-rated movie to win the Best Picture. Is it the only one? I think so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, paving the way. I mean, whether it's good or film or whether you like it or not, I mean, Breaking Barriers is a good thing. Uh, and, And that was happening... In this year in particular, as we've discussed in a lot of different ways. But
1: I've got an Italian and a Swedish movie for you from okay. 63. See if you've seen either one of these. Have you ever seen either The Whip in the Body or Winter Light?
0: Winter Light, of course, yes. Well, uh, let's Whip talk about Winter Light. Winter Light. You know, see, this is where I have to go. I had that Bergman box that had Winter Light, through a Glass Darkly, um, The Silence, which also came out in 63. Winter Light, then, is the one with the priest. Correct. Did he
1: do both the Silence and Winter Light the same year?
0: Yeah. Holy smokes. Um, wow. So, the Winter Light's the one with the priest in doubt. Correct? That's kind of the crux of it. I've seen it, but it's been a while, and so I'm struggling. I remember there being conversations. I believe there's an altar boy character. Am I wrong about all this? I think I'm I don't right. I think so. Um... There are conversations in, in, in that movie that are so exactly the th- questions I was asking either to af- some people or mostly just in my own mind because I was afraid to ask the questions when I was growing up in deep and deep deep in the church world, and it was a ve- it's a very impactful movie to me. I just haven't seen it in long enough to know the ins and outs of it, but. Um, through a Glass Darkly is the movie out of that box that I really, really love. But anyway. Is that right? Yeah. I, that's that, the one. And that's that that's that zone of with Bergman, same as Fellini. There's like this sweet spot. I kind of like those movies better than I like Seventh Seal. Um, uh-huh. You know, Seventh Seal is kind of like Breathless to me. I'm, I think I like Seventh Seal better than I like Breathless. But at the same time, it's kind of a better point of discussion. I don't want to sit down and watch Seventh Seal all the time and – yeah, Winter Light, it is the Swedish... Uh, I Pastor like Virgin Falls. Spring. I think that's the one that I I really like a lot. Oh, Virgin Spring's, Springs really great, but doesn't that feel like a genre film to you? Like, um, yeah, a little you bit. You know what I think, mean? Yeah, Not, yeah, maybe, I be, mean. is it just because it was remade into genre films? or No, is it you know it what it makes is? me
1: think of? Every time I see that movie, I think of John Ford.
0: Yeah, it's got a I Ford feel thing. Like,
1: I feel like it's got this totally John Ford thing going on in it that's really, really interesting. And the thing about Winter Light that I my overarching emotional response to winter light is I just remember feeling really stuck inside mm-hmm. all through it. Like, yeah, y- you know, you're just, you're not almost claustrophobic. You're just being suffocated by the space because like they don't go outside very much. Do they? I think it? mostly it's entitled? in the
0: church and yeah. there's low, these low angle shots when he's sitting, I, I just, I'm, this is all just pulling on old memories. I probably haven't seen this movie in 15 years. But I feel like there's these kind of low angled shots, and he's having these conversations. It's either like an altar boy, or it's like a fisherman character, or that somebody's having a lot of doubts and coming to him to talk about them. He's also having the doubts, but he's the one that's having to advise the other person, right? Yeah, that's what I, I think. That's the crux of the film, and I do think he. Uh, there's some, some sort of forbidden love element to it as well. Man, I wish I remember. I need to watch Winter See, Light. See, isn't
1: this amazing? We don't usually fly by the seat of our pants yeah. like this way. So it's okay.
0: This is, this is yeah. This is what it is.
1: Our I think our Sunday audience morning.
0: forgives it. We're usually pretty good, but they might uh, they might invite somebody who's the bigger Bergman fan than us might remember Winter Light much better and might want to come in and let us know what they think. But yeah, that that's that sweet spot for Bergman too, where I. I like, I'm like. i with you. I like Virgin Spring, but it feels kind of outside. Ber- it feels like a uh, yeah. kind of on the margins. Ber- That's not the word I'm looking for. It feels like Bergman doing something different than he usually does.
1: Right. I guess
0: the Seventh Seal is also kind of a genre thing, a little bit of a crusade film, right? But it's Crusaders coming home. Virgin Spring feels like John Ford, but steeped in religion. It almost feels like the searchers only in, in sort of in reverse and with a lot more moral uh, struggle to it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, totally. Where you get Jeffrey Hunter's moral struggle, that he's screaming out, hey, "Ethan, no!" You know, all it's through more, this. This is much like, more
1: internalized. It's like we it's have, more like The Informer or My Darling Clementine, those sort of black and right.
0: white, really heavy Ford movies. Well, the specific someone murdered, or in the case mm-hmm. of the searchers, it's the kidnapping. In this case, it's the murder. Only they come to you; you don't go searching for them. And then, in our American mindset, there's the uh, there's in the searchers, it's the struggle is Ethan kind of wants to kill Natalie Wood. Well, we don't want that. She's We don't mind them killing a bunch of, of, uh, of natives who committed the crime. That's just good old-fashioned revenge, and they deserve it. Bergman's, of course, going to say, we got to struggle with this concept. Sure, these guys did this thing. But we're not just jumping into revenge. That's not something you just do. You have to struggle with the concept of revenge, which I very right. much appreciate. Yeah, I love, sure. I love, you know, you actually, I think you know this about me and some of the things I've worked on. I like the idea that revenge is something you have to struggle with. As much as the audience might want it, as much as a character might want it, it shouldn't just be like, woohoo, we're going to go get us some revenge now. I think that's right. That's a fun that's right. genre for B-movies. That's As Roger
1: Moore yeah. reminds us in For Your Eyes Only. If you're going after revenge.
0: First, dig two graves.
1: Doesn't he say that? I'm pretty sure he says that in for your eyes only. I'm pretty sure he tells that to
0: Malaya. That seems like a kind of Monte Cristo line.
1: Yeah, it, well, it's for your eyes only. You know, it's the it's the dark yeah. it's the dark Roger Morley. Yeah. Well, here's the last one. Have you ever seen X, the man with the X-ray eyes? No.
7: August Fourteenth. Notes an Experiment Designated X. Experimental subject, myself, James Xavier. X,
2: the most fantastic experiment you have ever taken part in, presents Ray Moland in his most challenging role since his Academy Award-winning Lost Weekend. X, the man with the
6: X-ray eyes. Are you all right?
7: It's like a splitting of the world. More light than I've ever seen. Filled with light. X,
2: the man with the X-ray eyes, tries to help the most desperate in our society and enjoys all the delights of secretly studying sexology. Headache? No, it's just my eyes. A doctor with the power to see what others cannot believe. He can overcome the unknown, save lives, and invade the glamour gambling casinos of Las Vegas and defy the goddess of
0: chance.
6: Don't draw, don't draw.
7: Next card's a face card.
0: I've never seen that. Well, for some reason, I'm I'm picturing Humphrey Bogart. What's the Humphrey Bogart movie? Doctor X. Doctor X. Okay. Doctor X. So I've never seen this. Yeah, it's
1: a Roger Corman
0: movie. I love, I love Late Era uh, and he has the, land, the, the way. You
1: know, like, either he was just all in it for the paycheck or he actually really was enjoying this crazy shit that he did at the end of his career, like Frogs and yep. Columbo episodes and the Night Rosie Gallery. Greer.
0: What was the Rosie Greer movie? The Thing with Two Heads. The Thing with Two heads. And,
1: <laughs> and X the Man with the X-ray Eyes. You know, he, he, um, he gets to go a little Lost Weekend crazy by the end of it because, of course, he gets X-ray x-ray vision which at first seems like just a great thing but then it just keeps getting worse and worse <laughs> and worse and worse in terms of his x-ray power wow. until it's really bad at the end i've never so. seen that one well no, i don't you, know if doesn't you have anything to look forward to my friend because it's a good one well have to it really it. is i just i watched it not long ago and i was like yeah. yeah it's still good you know i think i'd seen a comic book of it when i was a little kid or something and yeah, it was, it's it's crazy. Nice. It's totally worth your time I'll have to check it out.
0: Well, I don't know. Maybe that's enough. This is an off-the-cuff episode, folks. I mean, we didn't say that from the beginning, but we just kind of decided to do this. The last. Don't apologize, second. John. I'm that's not apologizing. I'm just letting them know now. If I was going to apologize, I would have done that at the beginning. Okay. That's good. <laughs> no, well, it's just I'm, it's I, uh... just fun to, fun conversation for you. And, and get ready. I don't know what exactly. We don't know exactly when the new episodes of 7 by Seven will drop. Maybe by the time you listen to this, we will know. But we do have a season coming. We're starting recordings. This is the first one in a way, and uh, we'll be coming at you with from Rush with love for this year. It, at the very latest summer of 2021, I think it's going to be earlier than that probably Yeah.
1: All right, folks. We'll see you next time.
0: Yeah. Thanks for joining us.